Well, it's almost time for Americans to elect a new president. Have you noticed? I don't know if you've heard, but there's, there's, there's some kind of campaign going on. And it's the strangest thing. I, I grew up outside of the United States. I grew up in Mexico. But some things maintain across democratic cultures. Wherever people have the freedom to elect their own governors and presidents and representatives. Campaigning almost in every country from the missionaries I've talked to, because we've got missionaries all over the world, the, the campaigns all sound somewhat alike. It sounds like this, vote for me and it'll all be better. Vote for me and insert issue of choice, that will be taken care of. There will finally be enough teachers. All the kids will be smart and well-behaved. Well, maybe not that. Uh, nobody dares promise that. But all kinds of promises are made. In Mexico, they're only made every six years because that's how often they elect a president. And really, that's, that's always been the way with people. In the ancient world, when we step back from our day into the day of Jesus, it's a very different political landscape. There are no elections. They have a Caesar ruling over them. Look with me in Luke chapter 2, and you'll see what I mean. Caesar Augustus was making no promises. He was just giving orders. But he was beginning to build a political brand that anybody would be happy to have. I want you to read with me and notice Luke's concern for history, even as he tells us the supernatural things that pertain to the life of Jesus. He sets the stage historically and politically to tell us when these things happen. Luke chapter 2. Everybody have it? In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Sometimes the stories are so familiar that you read them quickly and you don't really notice what they say. One man gave a decree that the entire world, his entire domain, should be registered. You see, Caesar Augustus was certainly in his own mind and increasingly in the minds of his followers an impressive, important man. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. To this point, Rome had been a republic, but Caesar Augustus, and that's two titles, Caesar is his royal title, Augustus is yet another title that was bestowed upon him. It literally means revered. So his everyday name something, sounded something like revered ruler, an important man. To his, up to his day, Rome had been a republic, but he led one side of a civil war and one by one destroyed all rivals. Mark Antony was the last of his rivals, and he committed suicide after being defeated in battle. And under Caesar Augustus, the Republic of Rome became the Empire of Rome, and he was building a brand. In fact, he had this stroke of political genius. Talk about campaigning. He declared his dead father, who had adopted him, he declared Julius Caesar, his dead dad, deity. Now, think politically through this. 
if Augustus' father is now, his adoptive father is now gone and dead, but if it is now discovered that he was actually a god, what does that make Augustus? The son of God. On the eastern empire, on the eastern side of his empire, as Roman history progresses and the brand grows and people become ever more enamored and attached to this idea that one man could save them from everything that ailed them, he was greeted with titles like this, Savior and Lord. He told his subjects all across the world that he could bring justice and peace to the world. And verse 1 in this very familiar story really is a story of raw, pure, unrivaled power. He issued a decree that the whole world should be registered. Now, think about that. Does anybody know what they were registered for, by the way? Taxes. Everybody like to pay your taxes? Aren't you excited? We've got about three months left in this year, and you're going to have to make sure you have all your receipts for this year, because in April, by April 15th, you'll have the wonderful privilege of making sure that you're compliant, and if you're not, they'll come knocking, and don't you all enjoy it? Have I depressed you? You seem like a sadder crowd than… <laughs> there's more of you this week, but you seem like a sadder bunch, okay? Was it, was it mentioning the campaign in Texas? Boy, what a, what a great, way to start, great way to start a sermon. Caesar Augustus moved the whole world. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. The decree said that everyone should go to their ancestral tribal home. And that's how Mary and Joseph, both from the lineage of David, ended up at the worst possible time making a journey. It's very likely, I think, that Joseph alone was required to go. He could have registered his family. It says in verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Government can be terribly inconvenient. Mary's pregnant and very pregnant. We saw that last week. The very presence and the power of God has overshadowed, overshadowed her and embraced her, and somehow through the miracle, miraculous, life-giving power of God, she is carrying God the Son. So what they have ahead of them is a 70-mile journey, and look carefully at the text. We're going to do a little bit of, of Bible study today. I'll ask you some questions along the way. Did you notice the direction of the journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem? There's one word to describe it. They went up. Your dad ever tell you about how hard it was when he was a kid that he had to go uphill to school <laughs> in the snow, uphill both ways, right? And the principal spanked him when he got there every morning. And my favorite part of those stories, and we were grateful, right? Yeah. Yeah. Beat the dog out of us, fed us coal, and we were grateful. And that's why you're not getting a bike. Um, that's, uh, <laughs> that's the moral of those stories, usually. It's not a small detail. It's 70 miles over rough terrain in the ancient world with a woman so pregnant that while they're there, she gives birth. 
What am I trying to tell you? What this story is going to show us is this. The kingdom of God is nothing like the kingdoms of men. Every single one of us, and this is the struggle of discipleship really, every single one of us is born into a tiny little empire that we call our own lives. And we can criticize politicians for building their brand and accuse them of being self-centered, and most of the time we'll be right. But if we recognize that those politicians just come from our own ranks and every single person on earth is seeking to build their own little empire, on this day in God's timing, in God's history, a self-important man whose life was just as fragile and he was just as mortal as anyone else has come to believe somehow that he will bring justice and peace to the world and is starting to accept the homage and the reverence bestowed upon one who is a son of God. And without ever knowing that he was doing it, in God's timing, he issued a royal decree that turned the whole world upside down. Because there's never a good time to make a 70-mile uphill journey over terrible terrain, and it's especially inconvenient if you're pregnant. The kingdom of man is ruling at this time, it seems, over simple, ordinary people, and a faithful, obedient young couple is being ordered around by a tyrant. Did you imagine the story when I read it? I'm going to finish reading the story of the birth of Jesus, and I want you to pay attention to what comes up in your mind. Verse 6, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. There's the whole story. Now think about what you saw while I read it. How did Mary get there? on a donkey. And you probably saw a blue and white star over her silhouette, right? <laughs> Who else is going to be there? There's going to be animals there, and there's going to eventually be some shepherds, and who else is going to be there? The wise men. Can I point out to you the simplicity of this Bible story? You'll meet the shepherds in a moment. The animals are never mentioned. How did we ever get the idea that there were animals present? Jesus was laid in a manger of feeding trough. There may have been, but we don't know. There was no room for them in the end, so tradition overlays this heart-wrenching story of a desperate couple going from end to end seeking lodging, and finally the kind-hearted innkeeper gives them a place in a stable. We just don't know any of that to be true. What we do know is this. A faithful, obedient couple who was asked to believe the impossible, to she that she could be pregnant without ever sleeping with her husband, and he that the product of her pregnancy was not unfaithfulness but the work of God to keep promises that God had made a thousand years earlier, they both simply believed that. And a tyrant appears to be calling the shots. And all that happened on that night that we know for certain is that apparently a young couple left entirely to their own, never having had children of their own, 
had to go through this. Mary gave birth to a baby boy in the way that baby boys are always born, with fear and apprehension and pain and water breaking and blood and crying and contractions and paralyzing pain until the relief of birth comes and she realizes that her baby boy is safe and alive and healthy and whole. And then perhaps with her body still pulsing from all that she's gone through, she takes some clean strips of cloth and does what they did in ancient days and wraps the baby Jesus tightly and puts him down and rests him for the first time outside of her arms in a feeding trough that I'm sure Joseph, with wide eyes and trembling hands, made just as clean and proper as he possibly could. It's a very simple story. And the Bible doesn't explicitly tell us this, but I detect a subtext that I'd like to suggest to you. It's hard for us to understand in the ancient world how tight-knit families were, because we live in the loosest family structure in probably human history. We move very quickly away from each other. Promotions come or simply desire for better weather comes and family scatters all over the place. I've got family scattered all across the country. In the ancient world, it wasn't like that. People stayed close. In fact, people moved in. So the fact that Mary made the trip with Joseph over 70 miles of bad terrain and that there was no one absolutely there mentioned from their family in this most precious and also painful of moments, suggests to me I can't be certain that the fabric of that family has been torn. And I hear echoes of that in the innuendo and the flat-out slander that followed Jesus all of his life where his opponents looked to him and said to him things like this, we are not sons of fornication. What do they mean? We know who our daddy is. We've heard the stories, Jesus. Your family lineage isn't nearly as clean as you say it is. I can't be certain, but that's why I think they're there alone. It seems that the kingdom of man, the empire of Caesar, is calling all the shots, so much so that this couple is being bossed around and being made to register for taxes of all things at the most difficult time and facing this glorious and painful night all by themselves. Let's keep reading. And in the same region, there were shepherds in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. What you need to understand about shepherds is they are the most common of Joes in ancient Israel. They're not bad guys. David was a shepherd. But they weren't important men. In fact, their day-to-day -day work made them ceremonially unclean. They couldn't leave the job and go straight to temple. They had to be ceremonially cleansed or they couldn't go into the worship of the presence of God. And one night, ordinary men in the same region are doing a simple, ordinary task. They're just watching their flocks at night. Now, if you've ever had the fun, and it is fun, of hanging around just normal, rough guys doing their work, especially when it's just guys, what's that environment like? A little rough, right? It's not dainty. It's not refined. It's not a pinkies-up kind of environment. 
We're not told much about these men except they're out in the fields watching over their flocks by night. In other words, they've traveled to this pasture. In that difficult, arid climate, that's what a shepherd often had to do. He had to lead his flock around looking for pasture and water. And in their ordinary, everyday, workmanlike lives, something amazing happened. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. I suppose so. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. What's happening here? The very best news that humanity was ever told was told first, to the most common of workmen. See, if you were starting a movement and you were launching someone to save the whole world, this is not the way you would have done it. You would not have cast a shadow over his family story and his, his beginnings, his very birth, so that his mother was ill thought of all of his life, and he had to face the accusation that he was illegitimate. What a horrible, ugly word that is, anyway. And then, having done that, if you really wanted credible witnesses, if you wanted to sweep the whole nation up into the knowledge that God had kept all of His promises, you wouldn't have told these guys. They'd probably had a bit of wine around those, around those flocks. They probably weren't in the very best of shape. They were just shepherds bunking down for the night. Their best hope was one solid meal and one peaceful night with no robber or wolf approaching. But God upended their whole lives and told them the very best of news, and they were told that the promised Messiah, the one that God had been promising in the Hebrew Scriptures that was preached in the synagogue every single Saturday for generations, would be found where? In a manger. Three times that comes up in the story. A great English scholar that I've been reading to understand Luke a little bit better, named Tom Wright, says that when we think about the manger of Jesus, we, might, we need to be careful or we'll be like a dog who's having something pointed out to him. Here's what he means. Sometimes you can be upset with your dog, and I often was when we had a dog, and I would point things out to him angrily to f make him see his misdeeds. Have you ever done this and pointed, and you wanted the dog to take, take note of whatever he'd chewed up or peed on or whatever the offense is 
So you're pointing and lecturing. And what's the dog looking at while you point? Your finger. So Wright says, be careful. When you read this story and you keep hearing about the manger and the manger and the manger, don't be like the dog that focuses on the finger. Don't make your focus the manger. Why were the… here, we're, by, we're studying the Bible together again. Why were, the, why were the shepherds told about the manger? Look carefully at the passage. What was the point of directing them to the manger? Did I stump you? The manger is what? Manger is the… It's the sign, right? That's how they're going to know. There's babies all over Israel. Where is the one that will fulfill all of God's promises? Where is the one that will save the world? You'll find that baby, the Savior of the entire world, in the most extraordinary of places. He'll be wrapped up just like all loving mothers did in their day. They still do that at Hogue Hospital. I remember when I was first handed my baby burrito boy because they wrap them up so tightly, and I was so relieved that he was wrapped up. And then I wondered, does the nurse come to the house and keep doing this? Or how, how exactly? Because I don't think I'll ever have this skill to wrap him up so tightly. This little baby boy is going to be wrapped up in swaddling cloths. Mary would have taken that and made it as clean and as tight as possible. The belief was that it strengthened the child's limbs, and it certainly kept them warm and kept them from scratching themselves. That little baby boy wrapped up like they all would have been is found in an unusual place. And the point is, the promised Messiah is going to be resting in a manger. God kept all of His promises. That's the sign. That's what they went to see. Why did Luke go into this detail? Why did he tell you that God moved in the heart of a pagan king who was beginning to think that he was God himself and issued an impossibly difficult and very inconsiderate decree that moved the whole world to fulfill the promise that God had made hundreds of years earlier that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem? Why did this faithful, obedient couple quietly submit and endure that 70-mile journey to arrive just in time? Why was the fabric, if I'm right about my conjecture, why was the fabric of Jesus' family life torn from the very beginning? And why did He have to face accusations that He never knew who His real earthly father was? And why on earth was the Messiah put to rest for the first time in His earthly life when the Word became flesh in a feeding trough for animals of all places? Folks, we have a humble, humble Savior. We have a God that keeps all of His promises. And what I take from this simple story is this. People who live by the promises of God should not be proud of themselves. See, what's making this election so angry, what makes your family life difficult and angry sometimes, 
What makes work and friendship and every single relationship on earth difficult is that every single person born under these little empires of man is building his own brand, seeking his own way, building his own empire, looking out for himself. And the disciples of Jesus, this is the very crux of discipleship. This is where the battle is waged. We live by God's promises. We live purely and sheerly by the grace of God who looked into this sin-wrecked world, who constantly grasped for human saviors. Whether those saviors declare themselves kings and emperors or whether a nation rallies to elect a new savior every so often, every four or six or eight years depending on the culture and the customs, we look in vain for saviors, and we look in vain to build our own brand and to seek our own empire, when in fact we're told that because God kept all of His promises, we are in the kingdom of God. We're citizens that belong to Him, that God at extraordinary expense, the expense of the life of His own Son, kept a promise that He made to us, though we didn't deserve it, that He would save us from our sins. You see, the life of Jesus is bookended by two crude wooden instruments. His life began in a manger. When Jesus humbled Himself, the Word becoming flesh, so that literally the Creator of the world, the architect of all that is, the one who sustains the world by the power of His Word, Scripture tells us, depended on the first night of His life on the simple care that an ordinary woman and an ordinary man could give Him. That's humility. Much later, when Jesus was entirely in charge of Himself and knew Himself to be God and man, He chose to end His own life on a different kind of wooden instrument called a cross. And the Israelite feeding trough was replaced by a Roman cross and an empire that was starting genuinely to worship the emperor and offer incense in homage to him in the hopes that the Roman Caesar really, truly could be the Savior of the world, the true King, the true Lord, the true Savior died on a cross to keep a promise to you and me because, see, here's the story. Here's what you need to understand. This is what this whole book tells you. You cannot possibly save yourself. You can't. You will cling to life on this earth in vain. My time and yours is limited. Some of you are too young to believe it and feel it yet, but your life on earth is limited, and you can no more hang on to your life and direct it and save it than you can hold a fistful of water. The tighter you grasp, the more quickly it will be lost. But this is your God. This is your Savior who saves the world in the most unexpected ways by orchestrating human events and sending his earthly family to comply with imperial decrees, who announces the good news to men who literally weren't fit for worship, because this will be good news to all the people, beginning with people who no one takes into account and who few people respect. And the Messiah rests in a manger on his way to the cross so that you would know that every promise that God has ever made you was kept in Jesus. So, I take all of that and turn to myself and my little empire-building ways, 
and my self-protective, I know better, I can figure this out, I know better than God temptations. And I ask myself, Bruce, how could you ever be proud if you have a Savior like this? You know what would truly revolutionize family, friendships, workplaces, school places, and your little circle of friends, students? If you would wake up tomorrow morning when God grants you another fresh day of life and you would grant Him as King and say, Lord, I'm here to do what you said. I'm here to seek your kingdom, not build my little empire. And you went out into a dark world where real things like human trafficking and the cheapness of life that makes it not only legal but celebrated to end life in the womb and the countless things that people do to degrade themselves and each other. You go out into that world not with the angry pride of someone who will topple an empire, but a genuine kingdom seeker of Jesus who tells him, the only reason, Lord, I know you is because of your grace and the promise you kept to save me. It'll transform the way you look at people. You won't see them as adversaries and enemies anymore. You'll see if they don't know your Savior, if their heart hasn't been transformed by His grace, if they're not living on God's promises, it'll help you see them with mercy and compassion and love, the same mercy and compassion and love that Jesus had for them rather than His adversaries to be destroyed as the empires clash. We're kingdom seekers, Crosspoint. We're not empire builders. Let me give you one more practical idea. Here's how I detect my pride because this all sounds very general. Let me tell you where I find my pride on a day-to-day basis. I find my pride just as surely as I feel my anger. See, I'm only rarely righteously angry the way God is. When I hear of human trafficking, that makes me righteously angry, and that's good. That's a sacred moment when you have those kinds of awakenings. But most of the time in my day-to-day life, on a Tuesday at 4.30 in the afternoon, you're more likely to find me crabby, irritable, upset for one simple reason. I'm not getting my way. These people won't cooperate. They don't understand. They're intruding into my little empire. At that moment, if you'll take this into your week, it'll help you, it'll change you. You're not to be an empire builder. The Caesars tried that, and they are in the dust. They are simply relics of history. We have to study history to understand their great lives. The one who stands and lives to save today, his name was Jesus Christ. His life began on a manger, ended on a cross, and was resurrected from a borrowed tomb. How in the world should he, can his followers then turn and be proud and angry about themselves? We can't. People who live by God's promises should never, ever be proud of themselves. Let's pray. Can I give you just a moment to be honest with God and talk to Him about your, where you sense your pride? I've told you mine. I feel it everywhere I feel anger. It's, it's very likely that that anger is coming from a very simple place, my pride, my self-determination. At that point, I'm acting like a little king, not a disciple. 
What difference would it make to your marriage? What difference would it make to your friendships? Students, what difference would it make on your campus if you saw yourself as the humble, saved recipient of promises made at the cost of the life of Jesus? And you just kept thinking of that and kept thinking of that, and the result was a you so humble, so grateful, that you couldn't bring yourself to be proud and build your own brand. Those are, the, those are the disciples that Jesus is trying to form here and everywhere. So talk to him about it. Talk to him about the last time your pride got you in trouble. Tell him that you'd rather seek his kingdom than build your little empire. Lord, thank you. Thank you for being so patient with me. These stories are familiar and the lessons are simple. And yet I'm so slow to learn them and to live them. Give me your grace, Lord, not to be a hypocrite, but to be a true disciple who would live what I preach and transform, Lord, our lives, beginning with junior high school students who are in this, in this room worshiping with us. And thank you, Lord, for them. Move all the way across from students to grandparents and great-grandparents and make us humble, Lord, Help us daily remember that we live by undeserved promises, by amazing sacrificial grace, and that we have a king to love and to obey, not an empire to build of our own. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.